All right, let's, let's go ahead and take our Bibles out. We're going to open right to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God had created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female, He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The opportunity we've had this last week to be able to contact people that represent us in our state legislature and ask them to take a stand for this issue of life. It's our representatives' responsibility to stand for the rights of its citizens. But you know what? It's not only the responsibility of the representatives. It's our responsibility. In fact, we're the people that have the responsibility of choosing our representatives that go and represent us. So it has to, in some sense, fall to our responsibility as well. It's our responsibility, just in an ethical and a moral way, to speak up when we see innocent people being trampled upon. And so we have some responsibilities in this. Now, one of the things that always comes to my mind when I address an issue like this is that I don't want to ignore part of my responsibilities as I fulfill another. We have a responsibility to address this issue from many different perspectives and to address different parts or different people that are involved in this issue. Because the fact of the matter is, within our church body, you will find that within that body itself or within close connection to that body through family members and things, you'll find people that have been tempted to have an abortion. You will find people that have had an abortion. You will find people who have assisted in providing abortions. This is something that that touches us all in one way or another. And so uh, one of the things that I'm always concerned about as we address this is that we tackle it from all the fronts that we need to be tackling it on. And what I mean by it is that we have responsibilities before God that, that apply to in different areas. We have a responsibility before God to the culture. God expects us to be an impact in our culture. The church is stated to be the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is that institution within our society that is to be that pillar of the truth that holds up the truth, that proclaims the truth. We're also told by Jesus that we're the light of the world and that we're the salt of the earth. And He says nobody lights a candle and puts it under a bushel, but you put it up on a high place, up on a mantle where it lights up the whole room. And if a salt loses its saltiness, what good is it but to be thrown out on the road and be trampled underfoot? And so we are to be the, the salt and the light In one sense, then, we need to be engaged in the conversation. We need to be involved where it touches our world. Some people have a problem with that. Some people would say, well, the church shouldn't be involved in in politics. And This isn't just an area of politics. This is an area of morality. This is an area where you're defining sin. And the Bible is all about us being involved in those areas. But not only that, but what is politics? Politics is describes what we deal with together as public, as a public. And so any issue that is public is really within the realm of politics. The church is very definitely called upon to be within the realm of public. We're the pillar and ground of truth in the public. And so we definitely need to be involved in that. When I hear somebody say that the church should not be involved in politics, it causes me to think about a few things. Did you realize that God in His covenant to Abraham promised that He would turn him into a great nation. 
the writer of the first five books of the Bible was written by the leader of that great nation, Moses. And what did Moses record for the people within those first five books? Many, many laws. And then when you're done reading the first five books of Moses, you move on to the book of Joshua, who becomes the next leader of the nation of Israel as they go in to conquer the land and enter into the promised land. And then you go from reading Joshua into the book of Judges. Does this sound a little political to you? And then shortly after the book of Judges, you're going to hit the two books called the Kings. And then two more books called the Chronicles of the Kings. And then as you get up into the prophets and you begin to read the prophets, you'll notice that at the very beginning of most prophets, they let you know which kings were reigning during their times of prophesying. And we see God judge a nation and take it off into captivity and then bring it back. We see God give promises to a king that the coming one would sit forever on his throne and Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, we move on up into the New Testament and we see God save the Apostle Paul And when he saves the Apostle Paul, he sends a man named Ananias and he says, go tell Paul all the things that he's going to suffer before me and he's going to stand before kings on my behalf. John the Baptist lost his head because he stood up against Herod and said, it's not right for you to have your brother Philip's wife. It's adulterous. The fact of the matter is the church is absolutely to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world and we need to stand up for truth. We have a responsibility to impact the culture. In other words, there are ideas floating around this culture and there, and there are arguments being made and the church needs to be engaged in that process and we need to win those arguments. We need to present the truth in clear and concise ways and we need to fight for those things. Well, part of the reason that we need to fight like that is because we have a responsibility to the victims. Do you realize that over 60 million babies have been slaughtered under the law? In our nation, 60 million have been slaughtered. We're not doing a very good job of protecting them. We need to stand up on their behalf. We need to try to bring this to an end. And that's why we need to fight that battle. That's why we need to win those arguments. And you know what? The truth is on our side. But lastly, and here's where part of the rub comes in, as we recognize our third responsibility is we have a responsibility to the culprit. In other words, we have a responsibility to those who have gotten abortions and those who have provided abortions, we don't want to lose them either. We want redemption to come. We want the best for those people as well. And so part of the problem is that sometimes when you start getting engaged in those arguments, you can trample on people that we're also supposed to be reaching. And so there's a balance here of trying to reach them all. Now, some people are not going to be reachable. Some of them are just going to be argumentative and enemies in this situation. But remember Jesus' teaching, even to love our enemies. And we don't know what, even if they're argumentative now, we don't know that that's going to be their future. And, and so we want, we want to win them. We don't want to just win the political arguments. We don't want to just win the cultural arguments and get the laws changed. We also want the people that have been damaged through this process. We want those people that have been damaged to be redeemed from that, to be saved from that. We want to be able to speak truth into their life and we want to to bring grace and mercy to the situation. And So we need to be gentle in that aspect as well. Now, so many times people have come to me and said, you know what, I was in a conversation with this person and I said this and I wasn't trying to offend them, but it just is the truth and I want them to see the truth. And I said this and they were offended, so I'm afraid I said the wrong thing. And I want to say right here, Just because somebody is offended at something you said does not mean you said the wrong thing. 
you've got to evaluate that. You've got to look at it. And you've got to try to decide. Because we, are, we, are, we do want to say things in a loving way, but you still have to say the truth. And sometimes it's the truth itself that's offensive. The Apostle Paul recognized that the Gospel has an offense. And if you remove the offense to the Gospel, then you're taking away the Gospel. And you can't do that. And nobody gets saved. It's not to their benefit. The fact of the matter, if somebody is going the wrong direction, if they're making a bad decision, by just kind of blurring the lines and going along with it, you are not helping them. You're hurting them. I don't know how many millions of women have gone through an abortion being told, oh, it was just a piece of tissue, only to find out that through their own experience and reality with the situation, that was not just a piece of tissue. I, I killed my baby. What guilt they have to deal with, they have to struggle with. But you know what? There is a sense that the grief is good. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians in his second letter, he says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. You say, well, what, what is he saying? He wrote this letter to them. It made them sad. It grieved their hearts. And he says, and I don't regret it, but I did regret it. What he's saying is, I wrote it to you and I know it hurt you. And so I, it made me feel bad that I hurt you. But I don't feel bad about it because you needed to hurt. You needed to feel sorrow. You needed that grief. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So the Apostle Paul, as he wrote to these people, he had to tell them some hard truths. And it broke their heart. And he knew it would. And he, it, he hated to do it. it. He felt bad to do it, but at the same time knew that it was necessary. And so as he broke their heart, in the end he says, you know what, now I'm rejoicing. Because you read it and it grieved you. And you were sorrowful. But your sorrow was a godly sorrow. You know, it's kind of like when you deal with your kids. Catch them doing something and they say, I'm sorry. And you're going, well... Are you really sorry that you did it or are you just sorry that you got caught? He says, you see, there's a godly sorrow and there's a worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow is no good. It only produces death within it. It's only negative impact. But there is a godly sorrow. If you've come to Christ, you've experienced it. Because it describes that moment right before you embrace Christ where you recognized your sin before God. And you're pierced to the heart and you're sorry. But that was a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which means you turn and you embrace Christ and you say, Lord, save me. You see, that's what he's writing about here. And, and you know what? It applies directly to this subject because what has happened to many, many millions of women within our society is they've been sold a bill of goods. They've been sold a lie. And along with their own choice, have taken the life of their child. And when they realize that, there's a, there's a grief. There's a godly sorrow. Well, at least it's a godly sorrow if it turns to repentance. And you know what? If they turn to that repentance and they embrace Christ, then old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Hebrews tells us that because of the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross for that sin as well as all the rest of our sins, that we can have a clean conscience before God, that our past sins are all taken care of, our future sins even are taken care of. And, and so we can have a clean conscience before God. And that is my heart, is that all the women that have gone through this experience, that they would come to experience that grief so that they could find Christ and the forgiveness of sins and overcome that. And you know what? I don't want them left behind. 
And so this is always one of those subjects where we got to kind of walk a line because on one hand, you got to win the arguments and you got to steer the culture. And on the other hand, you don't want to leave the wounded ones behind. You want to bring them along in the process. So this is really a place where you got to really hit it on the head with balancing truth and love. And it's an area where you're always going to find yourself falling off one side of the fence or the other and trying to get back on it. And so as we address that this morning, that this issue, I want to recognize those three responsibilities. We need to win that battle for the mind of our culture. We also have a responsibility to the victims to protect those unborn babies and our responsibility to the culprit, the people, the women that are involved in it and the abortion providers, that we want to see redemption. We want to see salvation. Not just, it's not just to defeat them politically, but to change their whole future, to have one that's headed for heaven. Well, as we look at it, I'm just going to state it very simply this morning. God is pro-life. You know, a lot of times on issues you say, well, I wonder what so-and-so thinks of this. Pull in some perspectives. And that's a good thing to do. The Bible says there's safety, there's wisdom in counselors. But you know what? The ultimate person that we need to be concerned about with what they think about it is God Himself. And so we consult His Word for these things. And so as we consider here this morning, that's my proposition to you this morning, is that God is pro-life. And obviously the the insinuation is that we ought to be as well. I'm going to point out four different proofs. The first proof that we find is that God is the provider of life. He provides life. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. It's God that provides life. Whether we're dealing with abortion at the beginning of life or, or whether or not to help somebody take their own life at the end of life, this is the crux of it. Who is the author and the provider of life? It's, it's God. And so who is in control of life and not to leave that control there. It's God. We need to leave Him in control of that. It's, it's not up to us. When I, when I think of coming toward the end of my life, I have no clue what it's going to be like. I don't know if I'm going to die in my sleep, die instantly in a car crash, die some long, drawn-out suffering. I have no clue. But you know what? Whatever it is, it's got to be what it's got to be. I don't see any anything in the Scripture that gives me the right to usurp God in this issue of life, even if it's my life, and to do anything that's going to take my life or anybody else's. Who, who put me in charge of that? The point is nobody. When we start taking control of life itself, who, who put us in that position? What gives you the authority to be able to make that kind of decision even on your own life, never mind somebody else's? But we see that God is the one who provides life. But not only do we see God as being the one that provides life, God plans life. Now, I don't mean this in the sense of like uh, like planned parenthood or planned unparenthood, as it should be called probably. I don't mean this in, in that sense. I, I mean it is God's plan to have life and have lots of it. That is His plan. He told us in Genesis chapter 1, In verse 28, he says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You know, he does it again in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 7, this is right after the flood's all over and they get off the ark. And he says, And you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. 
They're supposed to fill up the earth. You know this planet, everything was pretty much made for us. Right? When you, when you watch God detail His creation of the world, He starts creating things and then the last thing to be put in there is us. I often think of like when we got my son Dan a, a hamster. What we did, we went out, we bought this cage, we bought the wood chips that go on the bottom and we bought this little igloo for him to live in and a wheel for him to run on and a food dish and a water bottle that he could kind of bump with his nose and get a drink of water. Bought all those things and we got home. What do we do? We start putting that thing together. We get it all put together. You know what the last thing that went in there was? The hamster. But without that hamster, there really is no reason for the rest of it. And that's, that's really what you see when the pinnacle of God's creation is man. Nothing else was made in His image. Mankind was made in the image of God. And God tells His image to go out and be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth. God wants an earth full of people. But the prevailing worldview in our day is very different than that. The prevailing worldview is that the, it's almost like the world, the earth and itself is the focus. And the perspective is that man is actually damaging it. And if it wasn't for man's presence here, the world would be going on so much better. I don't know why all these people care what the world would be going on like if they weren't here to experience it, but so it is. And so, they're so concerned and their, and their idea is that mankind is the one doing damage. It's our footprint that's, that's ruining everything. And so, we need to get rid of us. In fact, there's even a guy that was on the radio a while back that I listened to that was promoting a book on how to bring to extinction the human race because we're ruining everything. And he wasn't talking about killing people, but he was talking about, alright, let's everybody stop having kids. And then we'll just die off and the world can go out and flourish without us. Why? But you know what? The Bible's a very different picture. The Bible says, God says He creates man as the pinnacle of everything and He puts him in it. And what does He do? He gives him dominion over it. Make decisions. Govern this world that I've put you in. Farm the garden that I'm putting you in. Take and learn it. Use it. Grow it. Develop it. I wish I could remember the names. I don't, but I was listening to a podcast the other day. It was talking about back in the the early 60s, there was a guy, he started proclaiming kind of the sky is falling and telling us that uh, the world had hit its tipping point. We'd hit three and a half billion people. And he said, you know what? The earth is overpopulated. It's hit its tipping point. We're going to see mass destruction after this. He compared us to being out on a, on a tree branch cutting off the limb as we continued to have children. And he says, as things are going to get horrible. We're going to see mass starvation. We're going to see famines and pestilences and all of these things because now we've hit three and a half billion people and the earth just cannot sustain it. He said that there are five commodities that are essential to life. And he said that the price of all those was about to skyrocket. Well, then he hit 1980 and another guy came along and he said, that guy's out to lunch. He's wrong on everything. He says, actually, all five of those commodities are going to go down in price. And you know what? Over the next decade or so, all those five commodities actually went down in price. The thing that actually triggers it all now is it's kind of interesting that before the end of 2022, we hit the 8 billion people on the planet mark. You know what? With 8 billion people on the planet, we actually have less hunger on the planet than we had when we had 3.5 billion. We've over doubled our population and done better at taking care of the hungry. There are less people hungry today. There are less people in poverty today. We're doing better on all the different metrics that you can measure it on that way. Now, was the guy supposedly using science, which it always cracks me up, everybody appealing to science. Science is not a body of truth, it's a method. 
It's a method that if you uh, last long enough and you get something wrong long enough, you finally get it right, potentially. That's what science is. But this guy is saying, you know what, humanity is the damaging point and we're destroying the world and, and it's going to be this horrible future. And we'll over double the people later than that. We actually find that we're doing better than we were back then. So who was right? Was God right and that people are good and ought to fill up the earth and manage the earth and they'll be just fine? Or was this guy right? Well, obviously, clearly, God was right. But you see, that's God's plan. He said, fill up the earth. I remember when I was in Bible college, one of our professors was actually telling us, he said, if you look at the different dispensations, God had told us back here, go out and fill up the earth. He says, now we've pretty much done it. We've filled up the earth. We've got billions of people. And so that's not really applicable to us anymore. And a friend of mine raised his hand and he said, how, how do you know that? He said, I'm from South Dakota. <laughs> Seems like we have plenty of room out there. You know, it's kind of interesting. China took that outlook. China said you can only have one child. And they had forced uh, birth control. They had forced abortions even to keep every family. You can only have one child. And you know, China now is saying, you know what? That's not sustainable. We need people to have two or three kids now. But the problem they're having is now that they've got their culture so trained that they only want one kid now. And so now they're having a hard time getting them to have more kids. In our country, what do we talk about for providing for the future? We're so worried that Social Security is going to go out of existence, it's going to dissolve, it's not going to have the funds to take care of the next generation. Well, what do you expect when you killed 60 million of the next generation? 60 million more people that would have been paying into Social Security. And so when you look at it, God just stated simply, He says, look, this is my plan. Here's the world. Fill it up. God not only provides life, He plans for life. And then also God protects life. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, it says, And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Life had got very violent before the flood, and God destroyed the earth and started over. And just as they come off the ark, God institutes human government. He says, now mankind is going to externally govern mankind. If somebody takes somebody's life, you murder somebody, you're going to lose your life. You're going to pay the ultimate price. Why is he doing that? Because that will keep other people from doing the same thing. If you know that taking that person's life is going to cost you your own, it doesn't happen so much. And so God institutes external restraints on mankind in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 17, it says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Now, obviously, this is talking about murder because there's different contexts that the Bible says somebody can take a life in a justified way. If it's self-defense, if somebody's trying to take your life and you end up taking theirs, nobody was punished for that. If it was an act of war, soldiers are not guilty of murder. They're killing, but it's not murder. Capital punishment itself. God says that mankind... Collectively, we'll take the life of that individual. So capital punishment is not murder. Romans chapter 13, I think it is, talks about law enforcement. He says, they do not carry the sword or bear the sword in vain. They carry lethal force for a reason. And so there are different forms of taking a life that are not murder. But murder, he says, you will pay with your own life. Numbers 35, 30 through 31 says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And so God makes it very clear, if you murder somebody, 
then you lose your life. There's no amount that can be paid to set you free. There's no, you will lose your life. You know, as we have uh, DAs around the country becoming softer on crime, it's no coincidence that those crime rates are spiking. Now, that's life in general. Well, what about the unborn life? Is there a difference between the unborn life? God says no. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25 says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge is determined. So if two people get in a fight, this woman is hurt, mind you, accidentally. These guys are responsible for their own actions. They're fighting each other. And this fight spills over and hits a pregnant woman. And she gives birth, but the baby's okay. says the husband gets to decide on the fine. The judge has to okay that amount. And the person will pay that. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Anything that has happened to that baby that was in the womb, the equal amount of that will happen to the person that caused it to take place. So God is protecting life, not only outside the womb, God is protecting life in the womb as well. You know what? It's pretty awesome to see. Not every state's like ours that tries to get all crazy with abortion as soon as uh, Roe v. Wade got overturned. Some states already had laws in place that as soon as Roe v. Wade got overturned and it went to the states, well, their state laws from long ago even were against abortion. So abortion became illegal. Texas was one of those states. You know, I did a little bit of research to see what Texas experienced. September 1st, 2021, Texas, the Heartbeat Act goes into effect banning abortion after detectable fetal heartbeat at about six weeks. And their abortion rate just dropped. And look at what happened to the monthly abortions. They fell from pushing 6,000 over 5,000 way down to just above 2,000. They're hitting about 2,500 mark. So you just cut abortions in half. And then, of course, Roe v. Wade uh, got overturned. And then that made all their abortion laws kicked into effect from the past. And it just dropped it right to the bottom. In July, when that happened, July saw, I think Texas had 68 abortions in July. If you look back to July a year earlier, they had over 4,500 abortions in the month of July the year previously. But with their new abortion law, as soon as Roe v. Wade was done, the next July, 68. It's sad for the 68, but it's awesome to see the protection that kicks in when you get things right. Changing the laws makes a huge impact. It makes a huge difference. In fact, in July, one year prior, they were killing over 150 babies a day. And now, this last July, they would kill less than half of that in the whole month. What a great thing took place in Texas. Minnesota is at the wrong end of the stick on this one. Now let's look lastly. The last thing that we see in God, the way we know that He's pro-life, is He provides life, He plans life, He protects life, and He promises life. I limited myself just to the Gospel of John and actually didn't even use all of the statements in there, but life is a big part of the theme of the Gospel of John. starts out in verse 4. He says, In Him, talking about Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3.16, of course, everybody knows, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In John chapter 10, Jesus compares himself to a shepherd and he says, A thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus would tell his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 20, he would state the purpose of his whole book. He says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, that little shotgun blast of verses there, that's a small group of a much, much larger group of passages in the Bible that say that Jesus Christ came to give us life. The whole idea of the sanctity of human life, we get it from the Word of God. Because God said you are made in the image of God, therefore you are protected. James said that because of it we shouldn't even ridicule somebody who's made in the image of God, whether it's in the womb or without of the womb. We need to be pro-life. We need to stand. Because God is pro-life.